Now, will you turn in your Bibles to the 109th Psalm? If you still have your Bible open to the 112th Psalm that uh, we just considered, you may be on the very same page for our sermon text today, Psalm 109. After we read Psalm 109, we will turn to the New Testament letter of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. But our sermon text, Psalm 109, which is for the choir director and a psalm of David, as this psalm title informs us. Here's what he writes by the Spirit of God. O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off in a following generation, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off their memory from the earth, because he did not remember to show loving kindness, but persecuted the afflicted and needy man, and the despondent in heart to put them to death, he also loved cursing, so it came to him, and he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. But he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, and it entered into his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him as a garment with which he covers himself, and for a belt with which he constantly girds himself. Let this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord and those who speak evil against my soul. But you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake, because your loving kindness is good, deliver me. For I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am passing like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like the locust. My knees are weak from fasting, and my flesh has grown lean without fatness. 
I also have become a reproach to them. When they see me, they wag their head. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your loving kindness. And let them know that this is your hand. You, Lord, have done it. Let them curse. But you bless. When they arise, they shall be ashamed. But your servants shall be glad. Let my accusers be clothed with dishonor and let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. With my mouth, I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord and in the midst of many, I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. And now we turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3. Beginning at verse 12. Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the comprehensiveness of your word, that it speaks to all of life. We pray that you would open our minds by your Holy Spirit now to understand it better, that you might rule over our entire person, body, soul, and spirit, our wills and our emotions. Be thou the Lord, we pray, our Lord. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. People who are new to the singing of psalms in Christian worship often wrestle with this whole matter of singing imprecatory psalms. The psalms that actually ask God to curse his enemies. And generally, it's not the Psalms as a whole that give us trouble, at least not among Reformed folk who embrace covenant theology. We love, for instance, the 23rd Psalm. What Christian doesn't? We exult in the 100th Psalm as it calls us to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. There is so much in the Psalms to love. And then we come to a Psalm like our sermon text this morning. 
And here, of course, is the problem. In chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel, we read that our Lord Jesus, turning his gaze on his disciples, said to them, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. The Apostle Peter in his first letter writes of Jesus that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And the Apostle Paul described in part the transformation and renewal of our minds with these words of Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. So it would seem that New Testament Christianity, which is life in the spirit, lifts us completely out of the Old Testament world with its solemn temple and later synagogue practices of invoking God's curse on his enemies. It would seem that way at first glance. We come to the 109th Psalm, or for that matter, the 5th Psalm, or the 10th, or the 17th, the 35th, 58th, 59th, 69th, 70th, 79th, 83rd, 129th, 137th, or 140th, about 14 imprecatory psalms in all. And we have to wonder how and why the church has continued singing them down through the centuries. That's almost one psalm in ten, calling down God's judgment on the enemies of Jesus Christ. So is the psalm-singing church out of step with the Holy Spirit? It's an especially puzzling situation when you remember that these are the very songs he wrote in the first place. The psalms of the Bible are not our songs. They're not even psalms that were composed by the church. They're the inspired word of God. We didn't come up with them. In Colossians 3.16, Paul refers to them, the Psalms, as the word of Christ intended to dwell richly within us. They are intended for our wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. So when we sing the psalms together, we're just singing the songs that he wrote back to him. Then let's add this piece to the puzzle. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself before the cross solemnly pronounced woes upon his enemies. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites. And that wasn't just on one occasion. He said that to them again and again. Well, that's a curse, isn't it? To pronounce woe on someone. 
It's a curse, especially considering who it is dishing it out to the scribes and Pharisees. It's a curse. Woe to you lawyers as well, he said. Woe to you Chorazin. Woe to you Bethsaida. For if the miracles that had been performed in Tyre and Sidon had been performed in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Well, all right. Eventually, this spotless lamb of God at the cross lays down his life for the sheep. And as Peter said, he reviled not in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Clearly, the cross has changed things, hasn't it? Well, obviously, yes, in many ways it has. Except that here we find the Apostle Paul in the opening verses of Galatians, after the cross, pronouncing anathemas, that is, curses on the renegade teachers who are leading the Galatians away from the wonderful liberty that's ours in Christ. That's a problem for the theory that the cross and empty tomb put an end to Christian imprecations. And there Paul is again at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Okay, is the theological water muddy enough for you yet? Not quite. There's more. In Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus speaks of a coming day when the king himself, seated on his heavenly throne, says to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. The suitability of the imprecatory psalms and imprecatory prayer in the Christian life isn't a topic that's confined to the dusty old theological books of yesteryear either. This very topic, the place of imprecation in the Christian's life, this very topic was addressed with some urgency on the pages of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's denominational magazine, New Horizons, when they were still anticipating the publication of this new Psalter hymnal that included all 150 psalms. If you happen to read or have read the March 2014 issue of New Horizons and the letters to the editor in that issue, you'll find that there's a strain of thinking, even in a soundly reformed church, there's a strain of thinking that there are some biblical psalms that we really don't need to be singing that they're not morally or ethically fit for redeemed lips to sing. But if that's true, friends, then we have a real problem 
on our hands, both with the Apostle Paul, who is certainly among the redeemed, and even with our Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Do they preach one thing and practice another? Do they preach blessing and practice cursing? Paul's expression here suits very well. May genoita, may it never be. This isn't, friends, this isn't a matter of inconsistency. It's certainly not one of hypocrisy. Considering together the whole counsel of God and reasoning the matter through, we come to the conclusion, first of all, that within the context and framework of a covenant-keeping life, blessings and cursings each have their place. And secondly, that Christ Jesus himself is the one who determines for us which is appropriate in any given situation. We don't determine that for ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who determines for us what's appropriate. We have to look somewhere else in Scripture to explain such hard words as we find here in Psalm 109 and the other places I've mentioned. In the New Testament, Paul certainly wasn't a perfect man, but he was a careful man, wasn't he? Paul was a careful man. Man, He's not going to be preaching always and only blessing, as he directs the church to do in Romans 12, 14, and then cursing whenever it happens to suit him. And as for Jesus, he's exactly the man we need him to be. He is a perfect man, the perfect man, the perfectly law-keeping man. In Jesus we have a man whose tongue and life are in perfect agreement, perfect accord with one another, and both of them in perfect accord with the holy law of God. So with all these things that we've been thinking through, what are we really to make of these imprecatory psalms? Should the Christian sing them? Can the Christian pray this way? Can the Christian even think this way. Appoint a wicked man over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. And another take his office. And on David goes in this vein through verse 13. Can the Christian sing this way and pray this way? These are hard things even to read. So how do we put all this very clearly biblical doctrine and practice together? How do we do it? Let me suggest some things to keep in mind as we put all of these things together. First of all, beloved, it helps to remember that you, the Christian, are daily engaged in a real life-or-death struggle with a real enemy. You, the Christian, are engaged in a real life-or-death struggle with a real enemy. I wish it weren't so. 
and someday it won't be so. That day that our captain and king transports you through the gates of pearl, the gates of glory, far beyond the enemy's reach, you'll be safe. But for this present age, in this fallen world, Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's very true. You and I, as Christians, we have no quarrel with flesh and blood. The proclamation and defense of the gospel is, above all else, a spiritual struggle. It's a battle for the mind. But even there, in the mind, it's not a battle that's fairly fought. This battle for the the mind doesn't take place in a tidy little intellectual boxing ring that's well-lit, well-refereed, where courteous rules of engagement are observed on all sides. No, we discover that this spiritual conflict we're involved in, we find it to be a hard scuffle duped out in the back alley, as it were. It is an unfair fight against the concentrated rebel armed forces of real depravity, real darkness, real wickedness. And sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes those sinister concepts bring along with them an actual flesh and blood henchman or two, minions. Satan has his thugs, and they're abroad in the world, flesh and blood people whose spiritual hardness makes possible, makes possible the deliberate harming of innocence. Make possible lying gossip make possible the jailing of ministers, the burning of church buildings, even attempts at some times and in some places at genocide. Real, wicked people. Flesh and blood mischief, they intimidate the church, they tell the church that we can't meet, and they tend to come out in force against us, not when the church sleeps. They don't care if the church always sleeps. But they come against us when the church is awake and alive and preaching and prospering. It's the obedient church they hate. The practicing church. That hatred brings a clear and present danger to the proclamation and defense of the gospel. And it happens to be part of the world in which the church lives and operates. It's a real struggle, I'm saying. It's a real struggle against real enemies. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Pay attention carefully. We don't hate them. We don't hate them. Very clearly, the Lord doesn't give us that option of hating our neighbors. Any of them. And whenever you do feel a sense of personal revulsion starting to well up within you against that flesh and blood person, even of your mortal enemy, when you feel that welling up within you, 
Your duty as a Christian is to mortify that personal hatred within you. Put that to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Put that to death. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul directs the church to lay aside the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which according to God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Let God hate them, if he will, because his hatred is far cleaner and purer and burns with a greater brilliance than yours or mine ever will. We mustn't hate our neighbor, even the one who's taken a violent stand against the Lord and his people. We mustn't hate him. But neither can we peacefully coexist with him. That's the struggle. That's the situation the Christian and the church faces every day. Second, it's best to remember in this daily contest against the forces of wickedness that by faith, you, the Christian, are united by sacred covenant to the ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. You, the Christian, are united by a sacred covenant to the ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. He is your sovereign, your king. Which means, according to the terms of the covenant, that your struggle is his struggle. His victory is your victory. Do you happen to remember what the last glimpse that the New Testament gives us, the last glimpse that we have of our Lord Jesus Christ on the pages of the New Testament? It's not, of course, that of a baby in a manger. It's not that of a teacher teaching or of a miracle worker working miracles of a good, or of a good man hanging on a cross. We see all of that in the New Testament, but that's not what we're left with as we read the New Testament. Not even that of a gentle shepherd tending his flock, the church. No, they're on the final pages of the New Testament. Right before the canon was closed and Revelation sealed up, we see a glorious one sitting upon a white horse. John writes, he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And I've often wondered, as I've read this, whose blood is that? Whose blood is staining his robe? As he sits there victoriously directing history's battle against that old serpent and his seed, at the crossroads, as it were, of blessing on his right hand and cursing on his left, whose blood is that staining his garments? 
And I've almost come to the conclusion that it's not his. Not anymore. Not here. Not now. The day of shedding his own atoning blood is past. That is completely behind him. Now upon the robe of the glorified Prince of Peace is the blood of his vanquished enemies. He's warring on behalf of his church, his saints, his martyrs. Because what would the coming of this Son of God into the world mean for his oppressed people? The church. The prophet Isaiah said that among other things it would mean this, and we read it as our call to worship today that thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. So this contest is his, and the victory is his. Until that last great day, we who unite with him by a living faith, we are filling the ranks of the church militant. We are those volunteers that David mentions in verse 3 of the very next psalm, the 110th psalm. Your people volunteer freely in the day of your power. Now, like our ascended and reigning king, we prefer, we as Christians prefer to bless. We love to bless. We long to bless. In Christ, by the might and power of the Holy Spirit, that has become our new nature. That is our new disposition in Christ. But before we're in a position to bless others, in the words of the 144th Psalm, let us first bless him. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So the adversaries of God's kingdom are raising this perpetual clamor against us but here among us reigns the victor our savior and king the lord jesus christ united to him by faith we now have the privilege of riding under his banner we have the privilege of riding with him and sharing his victory A third thing to keep in mind as we sort all of this out, you may already have noticed that if you're a Christian, that our new nature enables us to experience life in more vibrant hues than unbelievers do. We experience all of life at a different level and in more brilliant colors. And all this new vibrancy really shouldn't surprise us. The Bible, after all, describes unbelievers as dead in trespasses and sin. They may see things in terms of black and white and shades of gray. 
Maybe. Biologically, unbelievers are alive, but spiritually, they're the walking dead. And of course, we all once were the walking dead. But what a difference the spirit of Jesus Christ makes when he comes into our hearts, converts the sinner, and moves in. When the Holy Spirit moves in to your heart and soul, all of a sudden, our love is sweeter and deeper and longer lasting than we were ever able to offer anyone before. And at that moment, or shortly thereafter, the, the light of understanding comes on. We begin to see the world as God made it. The colors are brighter. The lines are clearer. Through faith in Jesus Christ, our life becomes more fully and richly lived. And here's the point that I'm trying to make here. Even the Christian's anger is cleaner and purer than it ever was before. Now certainly there are many former practices that need to get the boot completely. There are things that we used to say and think and do that just don't have any place in the consistently Christian life. But anger? Indignation? Like several other human passions, the Holy Spirit doesn't eradicate them, doesn't eliminate them altogether, but he cleanses them. He sanctifies them. He makes them righteous and positively useful for the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this new life doesn't take away anger. Instead, the Holy Spirit sanctifies it, sharpens it, and puts it finally, finally, to good use. To good use. Be angry, said Paul to the Ephesians. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Fourth, and very importantly, when we sing these imprecations on the enemies of Christ, the sworn enemies of Jesus Christ, let's be sure that our motives are as far as they can be from personal revenge. This isn't a personal vendetta that we are singing when we sing the imprecatory psalms. It's prophecy. It's prophecy. These are the words of God we are singing. We wish no one ill ever. But we do humbly petition God faithfully and even speedily to keep his covenant promises. We ask him to turn his elect among our enemies to repentance and life and blessing, the repentance and life and blessing that we enjoy. And to bring the stubborn, the dangerous, the rebels against his kingdom, to bring them speedily to their final ruin. For the peace and prosperity of the church, 
bring them to an end. We understand that there is a time for everything. Solomon tells us as much in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a time for everything and that the Lord Jesus Christ knows those who are his. We understand that he's working out his own purposes over the long course of history. So we're patient. But we also plainly recognize that there is no third way. There is no third way for any one of us. It's going to be either the fullness of covenant blessing or the fullness of the cursing. It's either going to be the fullness of heaven or the fullness of hell. Our final destination isn't somewhere in between. In singing the imprecatory psalms, we're not longing for anyone's ruin, but only to see the resolution of this whole cosmic picture for the glory of God. An amazingly helpful reminder appears here in verse 17 of the perfect equity of it all. You hear a lot about equity these days. God is equitable. Equity even for the reprobate. He loved cursing. So, came to him. And he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. There is a peculiar rightness about this divine arrangement, isn't there? What God in eternity sovereignly decreed, sinful men in the course of time and history eventually come to demand for themselves. The reprobate experiencing God's curse is only receiving what he's always delighted in anyway. Now, I certainly can't claim fully to understand these things I've been preaching. It's hard to think this way. It's hard to speak this way. That men should imagine cursing to be a delight. It's a little like C.S. Lewis' situation as he wrote the screw tape letters. In his afterward to that book, he says it wasn't a fun book to write, the screw tape letters, because it forced him to see the world through a devil's eyes, forced him into the devil's shoes. He says, and I quote, This is C.S. Lewis. The strain produced a sort of spiritual cramp. The world into which I had to project myself while I spoke through screw tape was all dust, grit, thirst, and itch. Every trace of beauty, freshness, and geniality had to be excluded. It almost smothered me before I was done. And singing the imprecatory psalms can have that effect on the Christian if we don't come to the settled assurance that this is God's word concerning the impenitent, dangerous unbeliever. That man loves cursing, and so it comes to him. 
Fifth and finally, as we consider the 109th Psalm, and as we consider with it the examples of our Lord Jesus Christ and his Apostle Paul, let's bear in mind the distinction between the general rule and the exceptional in the Christian life. We shouldn't let those two confound us by both being present in the scriptures. The Christian's life is preeminently, preeminently a life of blessing. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, said Jesus to the Samaritan woman. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's the Christian's new calling and capacity to refresh others as we've first been refreshed, to water as we've first been watered. That's the rule of the Christian life. But this 109th Psalm and each of the other imprecatory Psalms reminds us that there is such a thing, there is such a thing as ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth only thorns and thistles. This is worthless, says the writer to the Hebrews, and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. And that once happened to a fig tree under Christ's curse, didn't it? It happens to the nation that loves cursing. It happens today in the case of every hardened sinner, hardened against Christ, who is the only means of his redemption. Now, as I said, these are very hard things to preach. They turn my thinking inside out rather like C.S. Lewis in his dealing with the devil, screw tape. So let's end on the same note as the apostle describing the ground that turned such a blessing as rain into thorns and thistles. He writes, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Following Christ, then, let each one of us learn how to be angry and yet not sin. Let's sing the Psalms, all of them, all of them, with grace in the heart, grace in the mind, grace in every motive, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the comprehensiveness of your word and the way that it addresses all of life. We thank you that you have given it to us as a standard, an infallible standard and rule for faith and life. And so we ask you to give us the wisdom that we need to divide the word of God properly, to understand it correctly, to apply it in our relationships in a way that is helpful to the kingdom of God. We do long for the day when the kingdom of Satan will be destroyed. And we pray to that end 
that you will give us the wisdom that we need to speak a word in season, be it a word of blessing or of rebuke. Thank you that we can turn these weighty and difficult matters over to you and rest upon your bosom, as it were, as a weaned child, dealing with things that we cannot fully understand. Thank you for the rich privilege that is ours of belonging to you, abiding within the bosom of your family, where there is safety. Be blessed, we pray, and bless us according to our need and according to the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.